let me move now down into chapter 4 at verse 1. He says, Furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. Now, the very interesting thing here is that we have how the believers are to walk down here, and that's in light of the coming of Christ. And this section here is bound up in that little word, walk. Here it is in the first verse, and we have it again, verse 12. "...that ye may walk honestly toward them that are without, that ye may have lack of nothing." So the parenthesis around this passage of how believers are to walk, well, it's mentioned, their walk. You see, this is the practical aspect. There are a great many folk today that like to dwell on the fact that, oh, to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Well, friends, in the meantime, your feet are down here on the ground, and you need to do some walking and you to walk in a way to please God. And that is the thing that Paul is saying now to these people in Thessalonica. And the fact now is, he's going to give them some commandments. And these are new commandments. The Lord Jesus gave commandments. Now, let me say this very carefully. The Ten Commandments have no part in a sinner's salvation. And the Ten Commandments are not the standard for Christian conduct. The purpose of the commandments today, they are a pedagogue that take you and me by the hand as a little babe and bring us to the cross and say to us, well, little fella, you need a Savior. And also, the Ten Commandments are like a mirror. And the mirror lets you see that you're a sinner. The Ten Commandments are not given to save you. They are given to show you you're a sinner and that you need a Savior. That's the purpose of them. Now, here we are going to see that the standard of Christian conduct is on a much higher plane. And there are commandments for believers. In fact, in chapter 5, we're going to find there are 22 of them given there for believers today. Now, the question naturally arises, if a man could not keep the Ten Commandments, and the Bible, by the way, makes that rather clear, does it not, that we were not able to keep them. In fact, the nation Israel, they were not able to keep the Ten Commandments. And that was the confession, you remember, that Simon Peter made. Over in the 15th chapter of the book of Acts, this is the thing that we're told here. And this is Paul and Barnabas as well as Simon Peter. I want to read verse 7, and I'll read that. And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, ye know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knoweth the hearts, bore them witness, giving them the Holy Spirit as he did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts 
by faith. Now, therefore, why put God to the test to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they that I was after. Now, how can he keep higher commandments if he couldn't keep the Ten Commandments? Well, he can't do it himself. This can only be attained by the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. For we are told here in verse 8, He therefore that despiseth, despiseth not man, but God, who hath also given unto us his Holy Spirit, and us only by the Holy Spirit. Now, let me come back to this word. He says here that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more in it, that you keep improving, that you'd grow in grace and in the knowledge of him. Now he talks here about the walk. The walk of the believer is all important. And he emphasizes it here. A believer cannot do as he pleases. He has to do as Christ pleases. Now, notice some of the things that he mentions here. For ye know, verse 2 now of 1 Thessalonians 4, for ye know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. Now, there are some commandments, you see. And these are commandments for believers. We are not lawless. We today should be disciplined, and we should be in obedience to Christ. And it should be a love relationship. We should be motivated by love. The Lord Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments. Now will you notice, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. Now, this word, sanctification, here is a very wonderful word, but I'm afraid that it's greatly misunderstood today. I think that if you go through the Scripture, that you'll find out that sanctification has several different meanings. When it's used with Christ, that means he's been made over to us sanctification, and you can't improve in that. And here he's been made over to us, if you please, even your sanctification. The word simply means not a sinless state here. It means that you've been set apart for God. Simon Peter speaks of the fact that holy men of old spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, those holy men, some of them, you read their story, they didn't sound very holy in their lives. Moses, for instance, was a murderer. David, who wrote so many wonderful psalms, he was a murderer also. But they are sanctified because they've been set aside for God. Now, Christians should strive for holiness, I think so. But you and I need to recognize that it's only in Christ that we can be acceptable unto God. Therefore, this is the will of God, even your sanctification, 
Now, you've been brought to the high state. You're set apart for the use of God. Now, there is that which is known as positional sanctification. And that means that Christ has been made unto us sanctification, and we're accepted in the Beloved, and we'll never be any more saved the moment we trust Christ than we'll be a million years from today, because we're accepted in Him. We're never accepted because of who we are. And therefore, sanctification means, in a positional way, perfection. But there is also sanctification that's practical. It's not positional, but it's very practical. And it is something that you and I are working on down here, or I should say the Holy Spirit's working on it in us today, because you and I cannot present perfection down here. And sanctification, therefore, does not mean that. If it did, Peter couldn't have said that holy men of old spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Was Moses holy? Yes, he was, but not in his life. And I'm sure that David, who wrote most of the Psalms, would not qualify for perfection in this life. And if you want to know something, I hope you won't let the word get around. I'm trying to keep it, you know, quiet as much as I can. But Vernon McGee is not perfect. I've discovered that a long time ago, and I rejoice that I'm accepted in Christ. If it wasn't for that, I'd be greatly disturbed. Now, what does sanctification actually mean? The root meaning of the word means that which is set aside for God. In other words, you're a lost sinner, and I'm a lost sinner, until we come to Christ. Now, when we come to Christ... We've been set aside for his use. Now, you have that in the tabernacle. Back in the Old Testament, you see, God was teaching these people these great doctrines through very simple lessons, by the way. Now, in the tabernacle, they had certain vessels and instruments they used in the sacrifices. There were pots and pans, and there were forks and spoons now, after they had gone through the wilderness 40 years, why, those pots and pans were pretty well beaten up and battered. I don't think they were very attractive. I think that any good housewife would have said, let's trade them in on a new set, or let's throw these away and get some new ones. But they are called holy vessels. Now, why are they called holy vessels? Because they're set aside for the use of God. That's it. And... Any person who comes to Christ, he's saved, he's redeemed. Now he belongs to Christ, and he's to be set aside for that. So what Paul means here, and I'll go back now to verse 3. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification. Now you have been set aside for a holy purpose. What do you mean by holy purpose? For God's use. Every child of God, not just preachers or missionaries or Christian workers, as we call them, full-time Christian workers, but every believer is set aside for the use of God. Now, he says, this is your sanctification. That is, you're set aside now for God. And because of that, that ye abstain from fornication. Now, when anyone today feels that they can 
engage in sin in any form, and especially the sins of the body, sins of flesh. And in that day, you see, all idolatry had involved in it sex. And today we are seeing the rise of the worship of Satan and Satanism and all kinds of amulets and rituals and little gadgets. They're used today in certain religious rituals and that this will bring you good luck. You go and find out through astrology you were born under the sign of the goat, and that means that you're hard-headed or something like that, you know. Well, may I say to you that we have a great deal of that type of stuff, and sex is involved in it. And unfortunately today, every now and then, and too often, by the way, you hear of some Christian worker getting involved, guilty of some sex sin. And unfortunately today, there are certain churches defend ministers who've been guilty of that. And as a result, why well, you wonder what kind of lives the members are living to defend that. So you have today this type of thing of people who are supposed to be set aside for the use of God. Now, Paul says you can't do that and be used to God. You can't be a preacher. You couldn't be a singer. You can't be a Sunday school teacher. You can't be an officer in the church. You can't be a worker for God today. And I don't care who you are. You will wreck the work of God if you engage in that type of thing because you've been set aside for the service of God. Now he goes on here in verse 4 that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. And I believe that as far as a child of God is concerned, and we've got a group of people today, they know all about sex, these young people today, and the immorality today is absolutely astounding. A student down in a certain college here in California, I was holding meetings there, and he's a very fine Christian leader, and he holds Bible classes on the campus. He says the boys' dormitory is Sodom, and the girl's dormitory is Gomorrah. He said, gross immorality is taking place today. Now, they know all about sex, but they don't know about love. And God is saying here that you should save that body for the marriage relationship, and that would apply to either a man or a woman. And one of the reasons that today there's so much unhappiness in the marriage relations today, they say... Oh, they are not sexually mated. I have news for you. <laughs> it's not a question that they're not related, you know, sexually. The problem is the fact that they are not being faithful one to another. Now, my friend, until that relationship exists, this is your sanctification and your honor, if you please, as a child of God. Believe me, Paul puts it on the line. Now, what? that ye should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God. Now, all around the Thessalonians were the pagans who mixed up sex and religion. And sex was a religion among the Greeks. You could go to Corinth and find that out, but you didn't have to go to Corinth. You could find it out in Thessalonica. Now he says, 
that you are to live a life today that commands the gospel. May I say that this loose living among believers today, that is, some believers, brings the gospel into disrepute. And I want to say this, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that these folk today are living for God, is serving God, for they're not. You cannot serve God and live in sin. He doesn't accept it. He says that, and he makes that clear here. He says, you're not to live like that, that no man go beyond, this is verse 6, and defraud his brother in any matter. And you have to be honest if you're going to be a child of God, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such as we also have forewarned you and testified. And I've lived long enough as a Christian and as a pastor to see this thing worked out in the life of many believers today. And I've seen certain believers who've been dishonest. And you know, God's an avenger, and he moves in and judges them. I've seen it happen again and again. Now I'm going down to my verse, if you don't mind. I'll pitch in it, verse 7 of now, 1 Thessalonians 4. For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. He therefore that despiseth, despiseth not man, but God, who hath also given unto us his Holy Spirit. A child of God cannot continue in sin. You know, the prodigal son may get in the pig pen. He won't live in the pig pen. For God hath not called us to uncleanness, but unto holiness. A child of God's indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and he can't live like that, because the Holy Spirit is a Holy Spirit. And the day's going to come when the child of God's going to long to live for God and long for holiness in his life. This is something that needs emphasizing today. You see, there's nothing that will affect your Christian life like looking for the imminent coming of Christ today. It's not a doctrine to argue. It's a doctrine to live by. Now we're told here, He therefore that despiseth, despiseth not man, but God, who hath also given unto us his Holy Spirit. Now, we mention the fact that the Holy Spirit is the only means by which you can live for God. We have had that, by the way, in the study in Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit. That is a fruit of the Spirit, these things. And a child of God cannot engage in this type of thing. That's the work of the flesh. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. And then in the 8th of Romans, Paul makes it very clear for what the law could not do. Why? Is the law wrong? No, it's right. But man's wrong because of the weakness of the flesh. The problem is with man, not with the law. And man can attain to that level. How would he attain to this higher level? Well, only by the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit has been given to us. God has given to every believer. Now, that is not something you seek after you're saved. The moment you trust Christ, you're indwelt by the Spirit of God. Now, when Paul got over to Ephesus, 
He found out that these people were professing to be Christian. He saw that they weren't indwelt by the Spirit of God at all, and he asked them the question, and the question is this, by the way. When you were saved, were you indwelt by the Spirit of God? Did you receive the Holy Spirit? Well, they said, we haven't even heard about those things. Now, Paul preached the gospel to them because they had only heard the baptism of John, and then they were saved and received the Holy Spirit. You only receive the Holy Spirit when you're converted, when you come to Christ. Now, you may have many infillings after that, and we need a constant, I think, infilling of the Holy Spirit. But as far as receiving the Holy Spirit, being baptized with the Holy Spirit, he puts you in the body of believers to function. This is the way that you can attain this level. He's presented here. Now, the negative side, he says in verse 9 now, but as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. Now, this to me is a rather amazing statement here. Love is the subject here now in these two verses that we have before us, verses 9 and 10. And a believer must have love for the brethren, and it comes supernaturally. You remember, again, the fruit of the Spirit is love. And that's not some theoretical sort of thing. It's not an abstract term, and I think some people treat it like that. I think I've told you the little story about the contractor who had a reputation for loving children. He was a Christian, and he taught a big Sunday school class of little boys and girls. They were all together. Apparently, he was the superintendent of that department. He built up that reputation. And one day, he put on a sidewalk in one of the jobs that he was doing. Came back the next morning. The concrete was wet when they left, and... When he came back, he saw tracks of little boys and little girls barefooted in his concrete. And he began, oh my, to deplore it. And he was angry, and he began to talk about what he would do. He went into the neighborhood and talked to the neighbors about permitting the boys and girls to do that. And so one of his friends who overheard him said to him, he said, I thought you loved children. He says, I love them in the abstract, not in the concrete. And believe me, there are a lot of folk today that their love for the Christians is in the abstract, not in the concrete. They just don't get down on the sidewalk. And that, after all, can only be produced in the hearts of believers by the Holy Spirit. Because the minute he mentions the Holy Spirit, he says, as touching brotherly love, he says, there's no need that I write unto you, because you're already taught of God to love one another. And I believe that that is something that is one of the marks that you can tell a child of God. I had a roommate in college, and he and I, we would wrestle, we would fight, and we would argue, and try to get dates with the same girl and all that sort of thing. And one day, he and I in the room, we had really had, had a real knockdown and drag out. We had really had a fight. We had torn up the room. And then he proceeded to tell me what he thought of me. And it was not very complimentary. 
And then I proceeded to tell him what I thought of him. And it wasn't very complimentary either. But all of a sudden it occurred to me, I said to him, I said, look, I said, you know, you are the greatest proof that I have that I'm a child of God. He says, what do you mean by that? I said, you know, that one of the evidences you're a child of God, John emphasizes it, and it's in First Thessalonians, that you're taught of God to love your brother. And I said, in spite of the fact that you're the most contemptible person I've ever met, you're the most unlovely person I've ever met, I said, I love you. <laughs> and he looked at me rather startling, began to laugh. And he says, you know, says, I love you. And he says, you are lots worse than I am. May I say to you, that is the proof that you're a child of God, friend. That's the evidence. And there's something wrong when you don't love the brethren. And so Paul here mentions that, you see, as touching brotherly love, ye need not that are right unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. Now notice verse 10 of 1 Thessalonians 4. And indeed, ye do it toward all the brethren which are in all Macedonia. But we beseech you, brethren, that ye increase more and more. Now, candidly, there are some of the saints today that are not very lovely. Someone has put it in this little jingle. To dwell above with saints in love. Oh, that will be glory. But to stay below with the saints I know, well, that's another story. May I say to you here that these folk loved all the brethren. Now, what do we mean when we say that? And we beseech you, brethren, that you increase more and more. So evidently, their love had not reached the summum bonum of life. They just weren't way up at the top. Their love may flag just a little. Very frankly, there are some saints today that maybe our personalities would conflict. Maybe it'd be better that we not put our arms around each other and walk together. It might be best for us maybe not to be together too much. But that doesn't mean you hate them. You can still love them as a child of God. Now, I know a minister. I absolutely despise his methods. But I can say to you truthfully, I love him. And you know why? I know a no one who just gets up and presents Jesus Christ as that man does. Oh, how wonderful he can make him, and I love him for it. May I say to you, that's the real test today. You want to put the blue litmus paper down in your life today and find out whether you're genuine or not? Well, here's the place to put it down. Do you love the brethren today? Verse 11, and that ye study to be quiet. Now, my friend, that's an interesting one. That's a commandment for Christians. Study to be quiet. Now, we have all kinds of schools today to teach people to speak. Every seminary has a public speaking class. I've always felt that it'd be nice to have a class that would teach them to be quiet. A lot of saints would need a course and learning to be quiet, my friends, because of that. It's like the lady went to a tongues meeting one time and the leader 
thought she was interested, went over to her and said, Madam, wouldn't you like to speak in tongues? She said, No, I'd like to lose about 40 feet off of the one I got now. We need to study to be quiet. This is a commandment. And to do your own business. That's a good one. And actually, it means tend to your own business. Tend to your own knitting is the way I used to hear it as a boy. And that's good for Christians today. Keep your nose out of other people's affairs. And to work with your hands as we commanded you. And I believe that every Christian ought to have some type of activity whereby he's doing something that's tangible for God today. That's a very wonderful thing, by the way. Then he says that ye may walk honestly toward them that are without, and that ye may have lack of nothing. And to walk honestly. And that is something that the saints of God need to do today. I have on my desk letters from several organizations actually using methods to raise money that to me are very questionable. And today, there are certain organizations that have men out contacting people that have become senile, actually, in order to get them to make their wills over to their organization. And friends, that's the reason you ought to make your will before you become senile, because of the fact that they are out to get you today. There's no question about that. And a child of God just can't walk like that. We must walk honestly toward them that are without, that you may have lack of nothing today, because God will judge us if we do not walk honestly. Now, friends, in First Thessalonians, the fourth chapter, verse 13, he says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them who are sleeping. That's a better translation. That ye sorrow not, even as the rest which have no hope. Now, this is a very remarkable passage of Scripture we're beginning here today. And we'll spend a little time with it. This passage through the rest of this chapter, verses 13 through 18 of 1 Thessalonians 4, has been called one of the most important prophetic passages of Scripture. It teaches the imminent and impending coming of Christ. Now, that does not mean the immediate. And very candidly, it does not even mean the soon coming of Christ. Now, a great many people use that expression. Now, Paul never used it like that. Because if he'd have said the soon coming of Christ, why, many would assume that he meant in their lifetime are shortly afterward, and now it's been 1,900 years. Now, actually, the word means the imminent coming, and it doesn't mean the soon coming. It means the approaching coming, and it means it's the next event on the agenda of God. Now, well, Miss McGee and I, took a DC-10 from the Los Angeles International Airport. Well, that was a new experience for us. It was a brand new plane, and it was just shiny bright. And so everything was new. And we, you know, just noticed everything. I always do when I fly anyway, make sure that they're doing everything right. And I wouldn't know whether it were or not, but I 
keep tab. And so it just took off beautifully from the airport. We went out over the Pacific, made a turn to the left, and came back actually over the edge of the airport. And as we looked down, why the captain of the plane came on. He introduced himself. He told us how high we were at that particular time. And believe me, we were already up in the air. And he said that we would go up to about, I think he said, 32,000 feet. That would be the level we'd be flying that day. And he then gave the weather report. He says, the weather is lovely here in California today, as you can see. And he says, the weather in Miami, Florida, where we'll be landing, it's good there and expects to be nice weather when we arrive there. But, of course, we go over Texas, and nobody knows what the weather's going to be there. But we hope to have a good flight today. And then he concluded by saying, our next stop is Miami, Florida. Well, now, friends, none of us jumped up, grabbed our hand luggage, and rushed for the door, because he said the next stop. Actually, he meant it's imminent. The next stop is imminent. That is, we're not going to stop anywhere else. Now, of course, we could have gone to Havana, but we didn't, thank the Lord. And yet, I've always wanted to see Havana. But anyway, in five hours, we landed in Miami. But all the way along, that was imminent, you see. But it wouldn't come up for five hours. But that was the thing we would be prepared for. Because it was imminent. It's the next thing. Now, the difference between that and today, the coming of Christ for his church, is that it's not five hours away. In fact, we don't know how far away it is. It could be five days. It could be five weeks. It could be five months. It could be five years. It could be 100 years. It could be a long ways off. But it's imminent. That is, it is the next event, and that is the teaching here, and Paul makes it very clear. He says, "...we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord." Now, Paul believed that the Lord Jesus Christ could return in his lifetime, but he did not say or believe that he would come in his lifetime. He just said he could come, but he did not insist he would come. And the attitude that he gave was looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. And over in Philippians, the third chapter at verse 20, and remember when Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians, we said that was the first epistle he wrote on his second missionary journey. But when he wrote Philippians, he's an old man. He's in prison in Rome. Now, has he changed his theology? There are those that say he did. Well, listen to him. Verse 20, "...for our conversation, or our citizenship, is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ." Paul, at the end of his life, was still looking for him. In other words, it was imminent. Now, Paul labeled this coming of Christ for his church when we'd be caught up to meet the Lord in there. He labeled that the rapture of the church. 
Now, there are those today that hold a different viewpoint. They say the Bible does not teach the rapture. You don't find that word in the New Testament. I insist that you do. And it's found in this passage of Scripture at verse 17 of 1 Thessalonians 4. I'm reading it. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. I break off the reading right there. Now, the word caught up here is a very interesting word. The Greek word is harpazo, and it means caught up as it's translated here. That's a good translation. It can mean grasp hastily. It can mean to snatch up. It can mean to lift. It can mean to transport, and it can mean to rapture. And to rapture is just as good a word as caught up. And if you just don't like this word, rapture, may I say to you that all you want to do then is just to argue a problem of semantics. That is what word that you're to use. Paul taught the rapture of the church. Now, if you don't like it, go back and use the original word. Just say that you believe in the harpazo. For that's the Greek word, and it means caught up, and it means rapture, and it can mean either one. So I'm not interested in arguing with any of these brethren about a problem of semantics. We're talking now about eschatology, about the rapture of the church that can take place at any moment, and that it is the next happening in the program of God. I want to make now a very startling statement about this passage of Scripture. Actually, the primary consideration here is not the rapture. The precise question is, what about believers who die before the rapture? Now, we need to understand the background here. And I want to back up again and give it to you again because of the fact that there are those listening in that probably were not listening when we gave it before, and every day we're told we gain new listeners. Now, let's look at this. Paul went to Thessalonica on his second missionary journey. He was there three Sabbath days, and he reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, Dr. Luke tells us in Acts 17, 2. Now, that means he was there less than a month. Now, Paul came there, and in that month's time, and we'll give him that long a time, he performed a Herculean task. To begin with, he did missionary work. He preached the gospel. Converts were made. He established a church. It was organized. And then he taught these new believers the great truths of the Christian faith. And the very interesting thing is, he taught the rapture of the church. Now, when I was a young preacher in a denomination, they didn't have much to say about prophecy in those days. And very candidly, I don't think the ministers knew very much about it. And they would give this excuse. They would say, now you shouldn't preach on that. That is deep truth, and that should be given to mature saints. It just shouldn't be given to new believers. Now, it's too bad Paul didn't know that, because... He hadn't been there a month, and he's teaching them 
prophecy. In fact, we get to the second epistle, we find out he talked to them about the great tribulation. He talked to them about the man of sin, the Antichrist that was to come. My, I tell you, he ran the whole gamut of prophecy for these Thessalonians. And it's nonsense to say this is not to be given to new believers. It is to be given. And Paul is the demonstration of that. Now, he taught the rapture of the church. He taught, by the way, that it might occur at any moment. It was imminent. And then Paul left Thessalonica. Well, he went down to Berea. And I say he went down. He was really run out of town. And he went down to Berea. And he said they were more noble there than they were in Thessalonica. And he established a church there. And I don't know how long he was there. Then he took ship and went over to Athens. And he didn't take a jet plane, and the ships were sailing vessels. They didn't move too fast in those days. And he arrived in Athens. He was there some time. I don't know how long. Dr. Luke doesn't tell us. Then he was looking for Timothy and Silas to come and bring him word from Thessalonica. They didn't arrive. So he went on down to Corinth. Now, after he was there for a while... Why, Timothy and Titus came and brought him word concerning the Thessalonian church. Now, they had some questions to ask. Now, Paul wrote First Thessalonians to encourage them. And in the matter of the rapture of the church, because that is the thing that seems to have caught their attention. And the question that had arisen while he was gone was this, that some of the saints in that interval from the time Paul left Thessalonica until he wrote this epistle, which could have been weeks, could have been months, and I think probably several months had gone by. Some of the saints in Thessalonica died. Now the question is this, had they missed the rapture? May I say this, and this is so important to see. Obviously, Paul taught the imminent coming of Christ, or this question would not be pertinent at all. You see, Paul said the Lord Jesus might come at any moment, and these saints died, and the Lord hasn't come. What about these saints? Have they escaped the rapture? Will they not be caught up at the time of the rapture? What will happen to them? Now, Paul has answered that in First Thessalonians. We have the answer. And to us, it's not a meaningful question. Because you and I live 1,900 years this side of 1 Thessalonians. And in that interval, most of the church has already gone through the doorway of death. I'm confident that the great company of the church have already died. They've already gone through the doorway of death. And Paul has given us the answer, and we're going to see it here of the place that the dead will have at the rapture of the church. Now, I trust you can see this would not be a pertinent question unless the coming of Christ was imminent. It was imminent. Paul had taught that. And that is what many of us believe today, that between where we are right this moment to the coming of Christ for his church, it's Tisha Thin. Now, that means two things. It means, first of all, it could happen any moment. It could happen before you even hear this tape that I'm making today. Or 
it could be way down yonder in the future. And there is a grave danger today of saying that the Lord might come and set a date. And I'm sorry they said that, because I won't be here to tell them I told you so. But the point is, if I am around, I won't be able to look for him. And the reason is, he said, I'm coming at an hour that you know not. And maybe they might have hit the year, but they sure won't know the hour that he's coming. And I don't think that they've hit the year. I think that they've robbed me of the opportunity of looking for him to come. So that what we have here now is Paul answering that question. Had they missed the rapture, those that had died? And this is the question. Now, Paul is answering. When we keep that before us, we can understand this passage of Scripture. Now, notice verse 13. But we would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them who are sleeping, that ye sorrow not, even as the rest which have no hope. Now, Paul says, we would not have you to be ignorant. I love the way Paul says that. We've seen it before. We saw it in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. And 1 Corinthians 12, you remember Paul began that. I would not have you ignorant, brethren. Now, when Paul says, I would not have you ignorant, brethren, you can put it down, the brethren are ignorant. Paul doesn't just come out flat-footed and say in a crude way like some fundamentalist would, you're ignorant. <laughs> Paul does it in a very polite, diplomatic way, and I would say a very Christian way. We would not have you ignorant, brethren, which means they were ignorant. So Paul says it so lovely here. We would not have you ignorant, brethren, concerning them who are sleeping. Now, he's speaking of the death of the body, and we're going to see that. I'm going into a great deal of detail here, that ye sorrow not even as the rest, not others, but the rest, which have no hope. Because, you see, the pagan world had no hope, and death was a frightful thing. In Thessalonica, they have even found an inscription there that says, after death, no reviving, after the grave, no meeting again. And one of the Greek nomic poets, Theocritus, wrote, hopes are among the living, the dead are without hope. I say to you that that's rather pessimistic, is it not? That's rather doleful. No hope at all in the ancient world were like that. And today, any preacher who preaches the Word of God who has a funeral can always tell whether the family are Christians or not. And you know the way you tell it, the way people weep. I've had funerals of unsaved people, of a family that all of them are unsaved, and I want to tell you the way they sob and cry. They have no hope. And Christians are to weep. There's nothing wrong with that. But he says, I don't want you to sorrow as those that have no hope. And a Christian, you can always tell the way that they sorrow. They have a hope. And we're going to see that also. Now, he speaks of death here as sleeping. And he's speaking of the body. Now, somebody's going to say, how do you know he's talking about the body? Well, the word that he uses is a very interesting word. It's koimeomai. And the word means that are lying asleep. Actually, the classical meaning in classical Greek, and Koine Greek is based on it, 
It means to go to bed. Now, friends, that couldn't refer to the soul, because how in the world would the soul go to bed? And how would the soul lie down? You remember that C.S. Lewis in his Screwtape Papers ridicules the liberals because they believe resurrection is, you know, just of the spirit and not of the body. May I say to you, he asks in a very sarcastic manner. He says, what position does the soul or the spirit get in when it is raised up or when it lies down in death? So if you want to tell me this means soul sleep, you're going to have to tell me what position the soul gets in because the word means to lie down. Friends, it can only refer to the body because the body is the only thing that can lie down. It's the only thing that is there. Now, this is the same word that's used for natural sleep, which always refers to the body. Over in Luke 22:45 at the Garden of Gethsemane, Dr. Luke wrote, "...and when he rose up from prayer and was come to his disciples, he found them sleeping for sorrow." Now, Peter, James, and John, you remember, they went to sleep there two or three times. Imagine at that time of crisis, these men sleeping. And then in Acts 12, 6, it says, And Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. That's when he was arrested. And imagine, Simon Peter, here he is asleep again at a time of a crisis. There's one thing we know a lot about Simon Peter. And one of the things we know about him is he didn't have insomnia. That man could sleep on any occasion, and especially at a time of a crisis. And when sleep is mentioned here, it refers to the body. It refers to the body, you see. And the reason that the death of the body is spoken of as sleep is very definite. Now, if you have any friend that believes in soul sleep, ask them to listen next time with an open Bible, and let's really see what the Word of God has to say about this and see how wonderful this is for believers. And if you have friends and loved ones that are Christians, have them listen. Oh, what a hope we have today. Now, friends, Paul is making it very clear here when he speaks of sleeping, he's referring to the body, never to the soul of the spirit of man, because the spirit of man does not die. And we shall note that now as we move through this particular section here. I'd like for us to note the reasons that the death of body is spoken of as a sleep. And the first reason I would suggest is the similarity of sleep to death. A dead body and a sleeping body are actually very similar. I'm sure that you've been at a funeral where you've heard somebody make this remark, well, so-and-so looks as if they were asleep. Well, that actually is true. The body is asleep of a believer. And a sleeper does not cease to exist. And the inference is that the dead does not cease to exist just because the body is asleep. Sleep is temporary. Death is also. Sleep has its waking. Death has its resurrection. Uh, Life is not just existence, and death is not non-existence, you see. 
Now, we need to note something else here. Second reason is the derivation of the word for sleep. The Greek word goes back to a root word, kemi, and kemi means to lie down. So again, may I say, that word could never refer to the spirit, because what position does the spirit get in if it lies down? And the very interesting thing is that the word resurrection is a word that refers only to the body. The word is anastasis, and it comes from two Greek words, histomy, to stand, and anam, a preposition, means to stand up. Now, it's only the body that can stand up in resurrection. This idea that the Bible means a spiritual resurrection, there's no such thing as that. The spirit does not die are the soul, and the soul and the spirit, they are not raised because they don't die. And we are going to see that only the body can lie down in death, and only the body can stand up in resurrection. That is quite obvious. Paul could say that absent from the body was present with the Lord. And again, we have used in Scripture this idea of the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Even the Old Testament taught that. In Ecclesiastes twelve seven. it says, "...then shall the dust return to the earth as it was." That's our body, it's dust. God says to man, "...dust thou art, to dust shalt thou return." What's he talking about? The soul of the Spirit? No. It's the body that was taken from the dust, and then God breathed into him the breath of life of the Spirit, you see. Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit shall return to God who gave it. Now, that's Ecclesiastes twelve seven. So that we're talking now about the body, and only the body. There's another great passage, and I think it would be worthwhile for us to turn back to it today. It's in Second Corinthians, the fifth chapter. Let me turn there for just a moment that we might corroborate this, that we're talking about the body. Now, Paul says here, and I'm turning to Second Corinthians 5, verse 1, "...for we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle..." were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now, the word for tabernacle here is skenae, it means tent. And these bodies that you and I live in today are tents. Now, I do not care what kind of a home you live in. You may have a home that costs $250,000. But I have news for you. You live in a little tent, this body. That's really where you live. And there's no such thing as some people living in a slum area and some other. God put us all in a tent down here. And I'm told that if you take this body of ours, break it down into the different chemicals that is there, that you could sell us today, even with inflated prices, for something under $4. Now, your house may have cost you $250,000. But my friend, you're living in a little four-dollar house, sort of a two-by-four thing called a tent. And it can blow down any minute. And if you don't believe it, you step out in the street and step in front of a car. 
And I'll say this, you're just about to fold your tent and silently slip away. That's what's going to happen to you. These are very frail bodies that we live in down here. Now, Paul says this in verse 2. He says, "...for in this we groan, earnestly desire to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven." Now, Paul says, "...we groan within these bodies." And again in verse 4, "...for we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened." We groan within these tents. Now, have you discovered that, my friend? I told an old man that I met him at a bus corner. Well, this was quite a few years ago. A gray hair, tottering step. He must have been mighty close to 80. He was swearing like a sailor. And I told him, I said, Brother, I said, you won't be here very long. You're going to have to answer to God. He says, how do you know I won't be here very long? I says, well, hasn't God already told you you won't be here long? He's put gray in your hair, totter in your step, a stoop in your shoulder. And I have a notion that you have short breath, too, by the way. And all he's trying to tell you is you're just not going to be around much longer. You're living in this little tent down here, and you're going to be slipping away. And my friend, you better make that decision now. God's trying to tell you something, and you're not listening to them. Years ago, President John Adams was taking a walk, and he met a friend. A friend said to him, says, "'How are you today, President Adams?' Well, he says, I'm fine, but this house that I'm living in, it's coming apart. It's falling down. Well, that's the kind of a house that we live in. We groan, Paul says, for we that are in this tabernacle do groan. I know that when I moved in the place where I am now, I just had become pastor in downtown Los Angeles, and I really was a young man then. And I could bound up and down the steps up to my study and bedroom. But now today, it's different. When I come down the steps, I come down one at a time. And there's no more bounding. These knees of mine, I find out they hurt. And I groan. And my wife says, you ought not to groan. And I tell her, it's scriptural to groan. I said, Paul says, we groan within these bodies, and I want to do my share of groaning. I believe in it, by the way. So that here, Paul talks about these bodies of ours. These are the bodies that are going to be put in the grave. They're put to sleep of a believer, and I can't think of anything lovelier than that. And the Spirit goes to be with Christ, Paul says, absent from the body present with the Lord. Now here in Second Corinthians 5, and I drop down again, he says this, verse 6, "...therefore we are always confident, knowing that whilst we're at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord." Now, as long as we are here at home in this body, this is my home I live in down here, you haven't seen me. Many of you haven't seen me at all. But there are many of you that I meet from time to time as I go across the country, and they say, well, I came to service just to see how you look. Well, I always feel like saying, well, you really haven't seen me. What you see is a head and two hands sticking out of a suit of clothes. You don't see me. I live within this body. You see the house I live in. It's not in such good repair, but that's what I live in. I'm on the inside. We walk by faith and not by sight. As long as we're down here, that's the way we're walking. But listen to Paul now, verse 8. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent 
from the body and to be at home with the Lord. And I tell the folk in my family, when you come by and see me someday in the casket, now that doesn't sound very bright, does it? You have to face the facts a lot. I said, don't say he looks natural, because I won't. I won't even be there. My house down here will be there, and it's put to sleep. And I'm going to go and be with the Lord. And at the resurrection now, and Paul's going to talk about that, the body's raised up. Many years ago, there was a meeting of the theologians and the leaders of the churches. That was back in the 20s, I guess it was, when the old modernism and fundamentalism argument was on. And they made one last effort, apparently, to try to get together. And so one of the liberals there, Greek scholar, read a paper on the spiritual body. And he took the passage in 1 Corinthians 15. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. And he put the great emphasis on the spiritual. And he just came down on that. He says, now, brethren, you can see the resurrection is spiritual because it says it's a spiritual body. Well, the liberals applauded him. In fact, they wanted to vote that the manuscript would be printed and given a wide circulation. And so there was there a conservative Greek scholar, and he was the one who was tops for years in this country. And so he said, I have a question to ask Dr. So-and-so. And it became a death-like silence in that place because everyone knew this man could ask some rather cogent questions. And so this man who'd read the paper reluctantly stood up, and he said, all right, he'd attempt to answer it. Well, he says, it's a very simple question. You can answer it. He says, which is stronger, a noun or an adjective? And he could see the way this man was going. He said, well, of course, a noun is stronger than an adjective. And this man says, well, I'm really surprised and disappointed that you, an outstanding Greek scholar, have put the emphasis on the adjective and not the noun. You've given the wrong interpretation that Paul intended. Paul says it's on a natural body. Body is the noun. Natural is the adjective. And it is raised a spiritual body. And he says the only thing that was carried over in resurrection was the body. That's what was changed. But it was still a body. But it's now a spiritual body. And the emphasis is on body, not spiritual. And, you know, they never did print that manuscript that man read. It was ridiculous when you really begin to look at it. Because it's the body that is raised up. And it's the bodies that sleep in the dust of the earth. And Daniel used that expression, Daniel 12, too, that sleep in the dust of the earth. And Daniel knew about Ecclesiastes that Solomon wrote, and Solomon had said, the body will return to the dust. Dust will go back to dust, the body. But the Spirit goes to God that sent it. Now, the early Christians, they had adopted a very wonderful word. They used the word koimaterion, that was the word they used for cemetery. And we get our word cemetery from that word. And you know what it was? It was a rest house for strangers. We call them inns. In that day, the inn was at Bethlehem. Every place had an inn, a rest house for strangers. You could spend the night there. 
And the early Christians called the cemetery. That was just a rest house. And a motel is where you sleep. And today we call them motels. We call them the Hilton Hotel or the Ramada Inn, the Holiday Inn, or the Howard Johnson Inn or the Royal Inn. These are places where you go and spend the night. And you get up the next day and you're going to leave. And the very wonderful thing is that that is the picture of a place where you bury your loved one. You don't weep when you have a friend goes up and spends a weekend in a Hilton hotel, do you? You rejoice with them. Well, the believer, the body has been put in a motel just for the duration. And one day he's coming and that body is going to be raised up, as Paul says. Now, will you notice, as he goes on here, and I must continue to move on, because this is quite a wonderful passage of Scripture that we have. Now, he says in verse 14, "...for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again." And I'd have you note that it doesn't say Jesus slept. Actually, it says he died. And oh, how accurate that is. There's three kinds of death, actually. There's physical death, the separation of the spiritual from the body, and that's what we call death today. Adam actually didn't die physically until 930 years after the fall. But there's spiritual death. Paul says to be carnally minded is death. What does he mean? It's to be separated from God. And that's what happened to man in the Garden of Eden. When man ate, God says, the day that you eat, you'll die. And that means he'd be separated from God. And that happened because when God came into the garden, man, he ran. And God and man are separated, you see. And Adam did die the day he ate, a spiritual death. And the Lord Jesus Christ made that very clear that we're dead. And Paul says we're dead in trespasses and sins. And in Ephesians 2.1, he says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. There was a famous judge that went around over this country years ago giving a lecture on millions now living will never die. Well, I followed him, a famous Baptist preacher, and he gave a lecture, millions now living are already dead. And they sure were spiritually dead. Then there's eternal death, and that's eternal separation from God. Now, will you notice, Paul then makes it very clear. Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep or have fallen asleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, this is very important, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord, we shall not go before them which are asleep. Now, Paul says, You've been worrying about those that died before the rapture's taken place? He says, well, I want you to know they'll have part in the rapture. Fact of the matter is, we that are alive are not going ahead of them. They're going to come first. Now, he puts it like this. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Now, this is a very important passage of Scripture that we've come to here. And I want to try to correct something, if I might, today. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven. I love that. He won't be sending angels. Now, when he comes to the earth to establish his kingdom, he's going to send his angels to the four corners of the earth to gather the elect 
That'll be Israel and Gentiles in that day to enter the kingdom. But no angel ministers connected with the church, friends. Angels announced the birth of Christ, but how did they announce him? Well, he was the son of David. He's the king. And that's the way that he's announced. He's to be a savior. But the important thing was a king is born. The wise men want to know where is he that's born king of the Jews. But when you're dealing with the church on the day of Pentecost, there were no angels. Well, the Holy Spirit himself came, you see. Now, when the Lord takes the church out of the world, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven. And there'll be no angels. Angels are connected with Israel, but not with the church at all. He'll descend from heaven with a shout. Now, that's the voice of command. That word of command as he stood at the tomb of Lazarus. Lazarus, come forth. And then the voice of the archangel. Oh, somebody says, wait a minute. There is an angel there. Oh, no. His voice will be like the voice of an archangel. The voice of shout is that of an archangel. That is, it's the quality of his voice, the majesty and the authority of it. And then the trump of God. Somebody says, well, then there's a trumpet there. Oh, no, friends. His voice will be like a trumpet. Somebody says, can you know that? Sure you can. Turn over to Revelation 1.10, and there you will find John is exiled on the Isle of Patmos. He says, I heard a voice like the sound of a trumpet. Oh, there it is. He turned to see. And whose voice was it? The glorified Christ. And here comes the glorified Christ, and it's his voice is like the sound of a trumpet. Now, that ought to get rid of all of this foolishness about Gabriel blowing a horn or blowing a trumpet. I do not think that Gabriel even owns a trumpet. And if Gabriel owns a trumpet, I don't think he can blow it. And he won't need to blow it. Do you think the Lord Jesus needed Gabriel to come and help him raise Lazarus from the dead? Now, I do not mean to be irreverent, but can you imagine this? Here he is at the tomb of Lazarus. And he says, Gabriel, won't you come over here and help me get this man out of the grave? My friend, the Lord Jesus won't need anybody to help him. When he calls his church, they're coming up out of the graves, the bodies. And what's going to happen at that time? The dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in there, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And I think that's going to be one of the most orderly things. The dead first. Here comes Stephen first out of the grave. He'll lead that procession. He's the first martyr. And then there will be the apostles. And then that martyr period when five million lay down their lives for Jesus. And then they will keep coming down through the centuries. And finally, if you and I are alive, we're going to bring up the end of the parade. We'll be way down at the tail end of it. You see, the church has already gone in through the door of death. Most of them have. Now, he says, Wherefore, terrify one another with these words. Well, of course not. My Bible says, Wherefore, comfort one another. This is something, friends, that ought to comfort you today. And what a glorious, wonderful comfort it is. And actually, it means not only to comfort in that sense, but actually to instruct and to exhort one another and talk about these things. Friends, Jesus is going to take his own out of this earth someday. What a glorious, wonderful day that's going to be. And the bodies of the dead 
will be lifted out. Then we that are alive, whoever's alive then, are going to be caught up together and are going to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we're going to ever be with the Lord. And we'll come back with him to the earth to reign with him at that time. And he's going to talk about that in the next epistle.